You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Heaven reaches where, Metra smerta, and his modia thunk, Werk wolder father, swahe wandra ye was, Eche drichten, or astelda, He eris shop yelda, bernum, Helven torova, Halleg, shippen, Tha midden yerd, mancunus weird, Eche drichten, after teda, Firum folden, Freya almictig. Now we shall praise Heaven Kingdom's guardian, the might of the measurer and the plans of his mind, the work of the glory father. Humbly let us honor Heaven Kingdom's guardian, the might of the architect and his mind plans, the goals of the glory father. First he, the eternal Lord, eminently established earth's fearful foundations. Then he, the first shop, hoisted heaven as a roof for the sons of men the holy creator, the maker of mankind. Then he, the ever-living Lord, afterwards made men, Middle Earth, Master Almighty. A translation by Michael R. Birch. Welcome all to this episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas in McPherson, Kansas. And with me this week is Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How are you this morning, Nathan? I'm doing pretty well. This is the first day of our spring break, so actually after we record, I get to go and do what I want to do rather than commuting to campus. <laughs> Excellent. Well, uh, next week is my spring break, so I, I get to say that next time, I guess. Very good. Well, not with us this week is Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius. Uh, that's uh, because, well, this is, a, this is a decimal episode, so that's okay. Well, uh, this morning, since uh, it was just going to be the two of us, we were going to uh, discuss uh, something that we don't get to talk a whole lot about, um, Old English poetry, since this is something that we both uh, had some rather extensive learning experience with, certainly, um, under the tutelage of Dogmas Johnny. But also, uh, Nathan has had the opportunity of teaching uh, far more than I have. Uh, I've gotten to teach it in translation and Britlet classes, but uh, Nathan has, has gotten to add Old English to the curriculum of his English department, which is pretty sweet. Oh, yeah, it's been fun. So, instead of talking about all Old English poetry ever, uh, we thought we would pick probably one of the most iconic little bits of it, which is uh, Cadman's Hymn. And if you're familiar with the band from, I guess, back in the 90s, um, it's not Cadman, it's it's Cadman. So, uh, Cadman's Hymn, a short little Old English poem that's preserved for us in Bede's History of the English Church. 
So I guess uh, we probably ought to start by saying a little something about Bede's account of how Cadman's hymn got written. Right, right. You know, the story here is that Bede is... Now, it, David, you'll have to remind me here, is Bede himself a monk or is he simply a worker there at the monastery? Uh, you mean you mean Cadman? Oh, yeah, Cadman. My apologies. <laughs> this, is, this is starting out well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, no, be a bead was definitely monk. Yes. Um yeah, no, if we if we continually switch back and forth between the two, please pardon us. Um Cadman was uh it's it's a little difficult to tell, but he seems to have been something like a lay brother. Mm-hmm. Um though I'm not entirely certain how developed monasticism was at this point in Western Europe to have that clear distinction between um lay brothers and not. But he, yeah, based on at least the early part of his story, I, I don't know if that's exactly what monks would have been doing. Uh, point uh, taken, point taken. But he does seem to be in some way connected to the to land that the monastery had uh, domain over in some sense. Uh, right. Possibly, yeah, possibly he was a... Not 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 technically a peasant because that came in with the Normans, but you know a, a low level farmer connected to the land that perhaps had been ceded to that monastery, um, and so that was his his uh, his lord now in some sense. Right. So, Cadman, who is somewhat affiliated with this monastery, uh, is at a gathering where basically mm-hmm. improvisational song is happening. Uh, and so, you know, the, it was, it was about the closest analogy I can think of would be something like a symposium as Plato presents it, where people (laughs) would take turns, you know, offering up songs. Uh, it comes around to Cadman's turn and according to Bede's account, Cadman basically finds himself unable to produce a song. He, he loses the epic medieval rap battle, uh, and he (laughs) flees the scene, uh, at whip, at which point, uh, he has a vision uh, in which, and see here, I you know, I, the account is a little bit squirrely. I mean, I, I take it to be an angelic figure, although the translations I looked at, I didn't have a chance to revisit the Old English, uh, simply said a man appears to him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, he tells him to sing the creation. Uh, and what results is that uh, Cadman, on his own, uh, when he's not around the other people, uh, basically recites this song. Uh, and he goes to the abbess, because she is the proper authority, and says, you know, I've had this divine encounter. Uh, I've been told to recite this song. Uh, and he performs it for Hild, the abbess, who is one of the great and, you know, memorable characters of medieval England. Uh, and she realizes that this is a genuine divine visitation, and thus she sort of sets him on his path as a poet for God. Um, David, this is this is one of those places where I mean the background story is always your strong suit. I'm I'm <laughs> I, I I'm much stronger like digging into the lines of the text. So what other background bits would you add to that? Well, I mean you're you're right that there's ambiguity uh, about the identity of the figure, um, in particular. Uh, in the, well, in the Latin, it just says a man. 
um, in Bede's Latin, in the Old English version of Bede, it's summon, some man, some guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but but typically, I think the impression of of angelicness has been uh, is is made because of a similarity between this scene in in Bede, in which Cadman is given the gift of poetry and um, uh, prophetic calls in, in the biblical text, mm-hmm. which we'll, we'll, we'll get to that in the fullness of time. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's a bad assumption. Um, right. Right. Yeah. I think there's more, there's more reasons for that just than, you know, some kind of goofy leaping to conclusions, even though the text says some man, um, I think there's more there than that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, in terms of the context, you, you mentioned uh, you mentioned the abbess Hild, which you know she's she's kind of a big deal uh, in this context. Um, you know, Hild is a very important figure in the church of her time. Um, is frequently called upon uh, by kings and uh, prelates of, of the age for advice and also to serve as kind of a, um, a go-between, an ambassador, uh, to the point where when there's a dispute over whether the Latin rite in churches will prevail or the, uh, the rite that, that was taught in the, the Irish church, um, whether whether or not the church in England would follow the pattern of Ireland or of Rome, um, it's Hild who hosts that council at uh, at Whitby. Mm-hmm. So uh, she's, I, I guess, in some sense, she's kind of like a little Constantine or something. Um, not necess- probably not with the same kind of <laughs> imperial force behind her, but with the stature to preside, so to speak. Which makes this a really interesting point. Uh, interesting point in church history mm-hmm. that you have you have an abbess taking that uh, taking that role. Right, right. Where do you where would you see this story fitting in Bede's larger account of the Anglo-Saxon conversion? Well, the, the main thing here is that you know this happens not long after uh, missionaries start to, I guess, make their move from a largely Kent-centered. Uh, mission, you know, Canterbury, if you think of that uh, famous church, you know, it's one of the earliest missions. Uh, Augustine of Canterbury, who of course is different from Augustine of Hippo, is one of the earliest Roman missionaries to the place. There are, of course, Christian uh, monastic orders in the north of the British Isles, you know, the famous Irish monasteries that folks hear about are up and kicking. But as far as Roman mission, uh, this is not long after, I mean, I, I would say within the first generation, David, and I could be wrong there, of the Northumbrian mission, as I think of it. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, when this poetry begins, it really is something that is central to the character of the Northumbrian mission as Bede presents it. Uh, it's not something that emerges when the church has already been established for a long time, but rather this poetry really constitutes its sort of original character. Mm. Well, especially with um, 
well, with the way that B goes on to, to talk about Cadman's poetic career after this hymn. Uh-huh. Um, in which he's, uh, and I have it, I have it here. A- after they discover that they have the, he has this poetic gift, uh, the abbess Hild uh, ordered him to be instructed in the events in sacred history. And so Cadman stored up in his memory all that he learned and turned it into such melodious verse that his delightful renderings turned his instructors into listeners. And he sang of the creation of the world and the origin of the human race and the whole story of Genesis, the Exodus, the entry into the promised land, many other events of scriptural history, the incarnation, the passion, the resurrection, the ascension into heaven, the coming of the Holy Spirit, the teaching of the apostles, and then the last judgment, hell and heaven. So according to according to Bede and, you know, would that we had all of this. Mm-hmm. Um Cadman was basically tasked in rendering into vernacular verse um, the plot line of the Bible. Right, right. The the major events of sacred history, the major the major uh, plot points, um, or you know, dramatic stages of that whole story, so that uh, it could be mastered and and performed. Uh, uh, in the vernacular by uh, by others, um, I, I, I guess this would have been something very something very much like uh, what uh, Wycliffe translators do. <laughs> right, right. You know, so yeah, there there was definitely a missional uh, missional and uh, catechetical, I guess, aspect to this. Mm. Now, I and. I'll admit I haven't dug into the scholarship uh, very recently at all, but I mean, what's the general consensus about the Genesis and Exodus poems that traditionally got ascribed to Bede? I mean, are the are to Cadman? Golly, I've done it again. Uh, <laughs> I mean, if, as I remember, I mean, people pretty much there was pretty much a scholarly consensus that those were later compositions that were attributed to to Cadman sort of mm-hmm. in the tradition of Cadman. I mean, is that still pretty much the the consensus? I haven't heard anything different. Okay, um, all right. It, but it, it does it does tend to show um, that what, you know, even, even if the Old English Genesis, Old English Exodus, and so forth aren't by Cadman personally, uh, the establishment of that precedent uh-huh. Uh, of retelling Holy Writ in vernacular style with vernacular language, um, someone has to make the decision that that's a good idea. Right, right. And that it's a sanctioned idea, uh, because that doesn't appear everywhere in Christendom. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think that's... Uh, e- even if even if Cadman didn't write those... Um, I, th- I think there's good reason that they're often called as as Cadmonian or in the Cadmonian tradition or something like that. Um, but when they were discovered in the oh late 16th, early 17th century, somewhere somewhere around in there. Yeah, I always think of them as 17th century discoveries, but yeah, that yeah. that that range. It was uh, Milton's friend. Um, ah, I'm completely blanking on his name. The guy who found Genesis B, 
anyway. Junius, Junius manuscript. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I'm like, okay, it's like it's it's the guy who had the Junius manuscript. Oh yes, Junius. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Franciscus Junius. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he found a lot of these. And, and a happy coincidence that he's the one who owned the Junius Manuscript. Exactly, exactly. Very very lucky for him to have stumbled upon the manuscript that had the same name as him. <laughs> hey, um, listeners, uh, it was named after him, so that's that's the joke. Anywho's, um, yeah, when, when they were found in the 17th century, um, we had Bede, we still had Bede, and Bede told us about this amazing poet, Cadman, who wrote all of this amazing poetry that we'd apparently lost. And when this uh, Old English poetry was beginning to be, in some sense, rediscovered or recovered, the part of the excitement... Um, hinged to uh, hinged on the fact that it that it seemed to be connected to this Cadman this this first English poet or at least first Christian English poet mm-hmm. was part of what made it exciting so yeah well I guess we ought to say something about how Bede fits into history of English literature and especially the way it gets taught yeah, this is one of those things where, uh, you know, if you have a Norton anthology of English literature, odds are it's going to identify Cadman's hymn as the first English poem. Uh, that's a, that's somewhat tricky, uh, simply because, <laughs> as we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, the Old English Bede, which seems to be a translation and expansion of the original Latin text of Bede's Ecclesiastical History, uh, is very hard to date, so it may or may not be earlier than other poems. However, because of the narrative setting of the poem, uh, the event narrated happens earlier than any of the known Christian poems we have. So mm-hmm. it's one of those tricky things where, you know, um, you know the, the, the best parallel I can think of uh, would be to biblical studies where, you know, most of the scholarship, you know, tends to point to a late monarchical or even exilic composition date for Genesis 1, for instance. Uh, and, you know, if you go that route, then Genesis 1 is narrating things that are much earlier than, for instance, 1 Samuel, even though 1 Samuel, according to the, you know, the manuscript evidence and uh, other sorts of contextual historical clues, seems to be an earlier composition than Genesis 1. So, like I said, I mean, it's a, it's a tricky thing as far as the composition date, but certainly as far as the story that the Anglo-Saxons were telling about themselves, uh, it was this miraculous calling of Cadman uh, that in fact started the tradition of Christian poetry in English. And it's very important that, you know, English poetry right from the outset is Christian poetry. It is a song about the creator of the world um, and it's one of those things where, you know, and interestingly enough, I mean, I don't think anyone had a better grasp on this than did Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, when he talked about English as, you know, at the English people, pardon me, as not only sort of Protestant in character, but almost Protestant in their grammar. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, if you look back to the earliest written records in English, I mean, they are precisely 
either court records from Christian kings or monastic records from Christian monks. So, uh, David, what would you add to that? Well, one of the one of the interesting things about Ka- well, Cabin in English in English history is he he gets this kind of first poet, but really he's just the first named poet. And we know from his story that he's already living in a culture that's full of lively poetry. Um, in fact, it's his fear of having to perform right. in in that context that leads him to, you know, hide out in the barn in the first place. You know, those guys' stuff, so far as we know, just didn't get written down. Um, so, you know, all, already in the texts, it... it, it you know, he's not the first English poet. He's the first one that's known by name and whose um, apparently first work has been has been preserved and the moment of that telling. And also it's it's a it's it's a gripping story. It's a, it's one of Bede's many miracle stories, uh-huh. um, which are uh, which are told to um support the authenticity of the Christian mission in England. Uh, it's, it's miracles in Bede's history are, are function very much like miracles in the, in the book of Acts, which are our confirmation that, that God is at work in, uh, in the doings of these various evangelists and apostles. Um, Bede is using Bede, tells miracle stories in his history for, for a very similar kind of reason. And Cadman's story is one of those. And the fact that English literature, um, that his story in English literature is also tied to that, um, has helped made, uh, helped make kind of the Protestant idea tied to English literature. Um, this was, this was especially, uh, a big deal in the uh, 18th and 19th century um, when Chaucer was more strongly connected to Wycliffism and mm-hmm. um, things like that. Um, the idea that that the authentically English character as expressed in literature would have been a Protestant kind of character, a Christian and Protestant character, that we have our own English Christianity that's distinct from Roman Christianity. Right. Uh, Cadman could be embraced for those kinds of purposes too. Mm-hmm. Well, what do we want to say about uh, the text of the poem? Let's talk about the poem now. Well, and this is what I've been champing at the bit to say, but I, I think I've restrained <laughs> myself for the most part. Go What's for fascinating it. about this is that Bede's ecclesiastical history, uh, the oldest texts we have are in Latin rather than English. Yep. Uh, and when we get to the Cadman episode, we get the narrative. Uh, but the text simply tells us that he sang a song of creation. It doesn't mm-hmm. actually produce a text of the poem. So, again, it's one of those fascinating things where we have to speculate because there's no record to tell us one way or the other. Is this something that survives in oral tradition because it was heard there in the monastic uh, setting and then sung by the brothers and sisters for a few generations before it becomes an English text? Is it something that a monk invents in honor of Cadman? Uh, It's really, really hard to tell. But what we do know is that we have two texts, a Latin text and an English text. And Mm -hmm. the text of the poem as we know it and as it appears in your 
Norton Anthology of English Literature. Uh, that's something that doesn't appear until the English text of Bede's Ecclesiastical History. As far as we can tell, I mean, this is a text that would would have been part of the court education uh, of the, you know, roughly speaking, the Alfredian era. And remember that, I mean, this is a time when we don't have a real strong separation between court and monastery. Uh, there's a lot of cross-pollination, if you will, between those two environments. So when we say that it's a court poem, we don't mean that it is not Christian or not even uh, specifically monastically inflected. Uh, we just mean that odds are the commissioning of the history probably came from a king rather than an abbot. Uh, and again, David, I'm, I'm, I'm relying on scholarship from, you know, long about 2008 when I last studied this with any intensity. I mean, has anything shifted significantly since then? <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay, very good, very good. Not that I know of. No, it, it's extraordinarily interesting that Bede wants to tell the story, but as he tells it, he has um, he has apparently very little interest in in actually recording the content of the song. He wants to tell us that the song happened, but. Um, he, he, he isn't interested in preserving it in Old English. Um, I think he gives some kind of a pressy of it in Latin. Yeah. But, it, but it's not preserving the... It's not preserving the Old English verse form. It's not preserving the diction. And it's not because Bede hates Old English verse. Um, you know, according to the um, uh, a letter written by one of his disciples, as Bede was on his deathbed, he was composing Old English verse. Um to spontaneously apparently to uh, as 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 uh, comfort for his students who he was like singing them comforting songs and songs about how they needed to you know think about their own deaths as they watched him dying and things like that mm. so it's not like bead was not a fan of old english it just didn't for whatever reason it wasn't important when the latin text when 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 bead was writing in latin it just didn't seem important to actually write it down. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, it, it, it's it's not unlike, uh, and again, I keep going back to biblical studies, but it helps me to think about this to put the two next to each other and kind of see similar dynamics. You know, if you are familiar with uh, the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, you know, one of the interesting bits is when, uh, and I'm trying to think which king is it in the Daniel version, it's Nebuchadnezzar who is sent out into the wilderness to, you know, eat grass as if he were livestock. Uh, so, I mean, it's a great story of the humbling of the powerful, so on and so forth. Eventually he repents, returns, uh, presumably becomes king, although our narrator just kind of loses interest in Nebuchadnezzar and moves on to Belshazzar at that point. But what's interesting is if you uh, find a good English translation of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are easily available... If anyone tells you that, you know, the Vatican is keeping those secret, go to Amazon.com. <laughs> it's not all that secret. But uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there actually is uh, a text called the Prayer of Nabonidus. So it is very obviously set in that narrative context where a king has gone mad and gone into the wilderness. Uh, but first of all, it's ascribed to a different king. But more importantly than that, it is a poetic basically psalm of penitence 
uh, naming all of the sins that he had committed and his pride before God and so on and so forth. Uh, and again, it's one of those things where in the later uh, Dead Sea Scrolls text, we actually have a poetic text for something that is just sort of vaguely alluded to in the canonical book of Daniel. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's the same sort of dynamic here. The Latin text of the ecclesiastical history, as David said, tells us basically what the poem was about. The English text provides us with the poem itself. Right. Which I, I tend to, you know, may, maybe this is just not, maybe I'm just not being, you know, skeptically critical enough, but I tend to say, okay, that's probably pretty much what it was. Um, but I may, mainly because I, I don't see any reason why not. Right. Um, and I tend but, to give a postmodern shrug and say, who cares? It's good poetry. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the, one of the things that's interesting to me about it, and we don't really have to get into this that much is uh-huh. that there's more than one version of even the old English, um, Cadman's hymn, uh, in, in the different dialects of old English. Right. Which which seems to say that, you know, whoever wrote this poem, um, it was popular across the borders uh, of across not only political borders, but also dialectal borders. Right. Right. Uh, At which point we would need to account for its popularity. We would need to be we do. We would need to explain why is it that this hymn keeps showing up in these different places? Mm -hmm. Um. I haven't done enough digging into all the different manuscripts as to where it shows up and in what contexts. Um, I imagine it's probably in, you know, different, different old English versions of bead or things like that. Right. And then this is why, I mean, it's interesting to speculate about these things because again, the practice of situating it historically is always a matter of speculation, but it's always mm -hmm. a matter of educated speculation. Right. So, I mean, one scenario you could trace out is that, you know, in this originary moment that Bede narrates, a man named Cadman did speak something very much like this hymn that appears in the Old English Cadman. It spread far and wide, and therefore it migrated back, if you will, into the Old English text. Other possible scenario is that there was a popular creation hymn that was floating about, didn't have a name attached to it, when the Old English translator of Bede got to that bit in the ecclesiastical history, said, well, you know, this is the creation hymn of the English. It must be Cadman's hymn, right? (laughs) Now, again, you know, uh, is there a documentary source that tells us either of those narratives? Well, no, of course there's not. Uh, That's what makes it fun. And that's why, uh, listeners, I'm going to go ahead and get on one of my soapboxes here and say that when people talk about medieval scholarship or biblical scholarship or anything like that as if it were an undisputable and undisputed thing they're just getting it wrong <laughs> yeah i mean we're we're dealing with an area of vast mystery yeah and no one no one's sitting down taking notes about this no one's transcribing it um you know it's it's the kind of process of of transmission and uh you know patchy recording that really makes the provost at my college upset because we want, we need to have everything documented as we make, (laughs) you know, different decisions in the department. Everything has to show up in the minutes. Um, 
sorry. Yeah, Med- yeah. Med- medieval texts are not that well documented. Right. God, God hadn't seen seen fit to invent Robert's Rules of Order yet. No, no, not at it yet. <laughs> Memos were not going out in triplicate. Right, right. That's what I always tell my students when they get frustrated with the, uh, shall we say, non-standard forms that tend to appear in Old English texts. I say, well, you know, uh, God hadn't invented Samuel Johnson yet. <laughs> yeah, well, the, 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 Samuel Johnson, thousands of years in the making. <laughs> Although yeah. I'm pretty sure there's a passage in Isaiah. No, there isn't. Oh, well. <laughs> no. <laughs> so let's talk about the poetry. You say it's you say it's good poetry. So so what makes this poetry, and why do you think it's good? Let's talk about the prosody. Yeah, let's talk about the form of Old English poetry first. Uh, if you are used to modern English poetry, you, you are accustomed to poetry that's heavily influenced by Renaissance Italian poetry, uh, and where the premium, if you will, is on, first of all, rhythmic meter, so in other words, syllable counts, accents, things like that, and perhaps even more famously on end rhyme. Uh, so, you know, if you are coming out of a, you know, high school English environment, you probably take some pride in the fact that you are reading and possibly composing some poetry that doesn't do the rhyming thing like poetry had always done before. Well, that's not exactly the case. Uh, <laughs> in in Old English poetry and then, you know, in what gets called the alliterative revival in Middle English poetry, uh, verse is composed not by uh, a syllable count that's, you know, strictly measured and accented, and certainly not by the end of this line rhyming with the end of that line, but instead what you have is alliterative lines, and the general rule, although there are always exceptions, that was that's what makes poetry so interesting, uh, is that in the first half of the line you will have some sort of consonant uh, that will appear in some place of prominence, and then the same consonant will appear once or twice in the other half of the line as well. This is why, incidentally, if you've ever heard correctly, uh, that Old English has about 17 words for warrior and about 30 words for sword. Uh, it's not just because they got bored and started inventing more sword words. It's so that they could write battle poems and do this alliterative thing. They needed sword words that started with different letters, you see. Uh, now, what makes it good uh, is what makes Old English poetry so fun in its own right and what makes this an especially skillful example of it is what we call kennings. Uh, kennings are compound words. They are nouns and sometimes adjectives linked together. Uh, and they are things like uh, what David read you know, far more smoothly than I ever would, uh, uh the heaven kingdom. This is something that, you know, in English, we might take three or four helping words to do. Old English, and especially Old English verse, can simply sling two nouns together and it becomes an entirely new concept. Other examples of this, you know, modiathonk, uh, the plans of the mind, uh, world of father, the glorious father. Uh, let's see here, what else? And of course, uh, you know, uh, this is what I always joke with my students when we get to, you know, a an age of the world passage in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. Uh, this is when you can take a drink of your ale, Midanyerd, Middle Earth, uh, <laughs> which has not only a geographic, because it's between heaven and hell, but also a chronological meaning, because it is between 
the creation and the final consummation of the kingdom of God. Uh, so, David, what other bits? I mean, I, I, I kind of strip mined it there. What, what, what other bits of the poem do you want to point out and praise? Well, there is, um, there is meter in, in Old English verse, but you're right. It's not the regular meter that we're used to. It's not, you know, it's not going to be your, your, your friendly iambic pentameter from sonnets and so forth. Right. Um, the difficulty with Old English meter is that it varies even within the same line and it varies from, you know, from line to line. Each line is broken into two half lines, um, as, as, as you said, Nathan, um, you've, the alliteration works across that that gap between the two half lines. New schulen herian gap, herfenreiches word. So you've got the herian and the herfenreiches, you know, the two H's, you know, kind of calling to one another across the deep. Um, but you also have two different uh, metric uh, patterns in each half line. So you know, from line two, meteras mecta, um, da, you know, strong beat, two weak beats, strong mm. beat, weak beat, on his mode, you thunk. Um, and that one begins with weak beats, has strong beat in the middle, and then kind of, and then kind of trickles down again, mode, you thunk. Um, or you could read it as mode, you thunk. Anyway. So it's various, and you know, it'll sometimes be a weak beat, a strong beat, a weak beat, a strong beat, strong beat, weak beat, strong beat, weak beat, weak beat, strong beat, strong beat, weak beat, and they all have letters assigned. You get that, listeners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so each line has its own. It's 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 like improv. It's like somebody's improvising on the bongos. Yeah. All right. Um, one of my, uh, one of my old English teachers, uh, Steve Glasecki compared it to, um, listening to a jeweler with a hammer, um, as he's, you know, kind of rhythmically hammering out fine patterns, you know, and anyway, it, it's, it's pretty when it's done right, but it's one of the most challenging things about old English poetry. Just, just know that it's there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Now, let me and, ask you this, David. And then I'm going to step away. <laughs> the, the, this is something, I mean, I know that uh, in ancient and medieval manuscripts, they tended to conserve space just because writing media were so expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, when do we first get uh, the sort of stitchography where people actually started setting these as half lines with a gap between? Oh, uh, huh. Because, I mean, for instance, the Beowulf manuscript, I mean, doesn't look anything like the edited, you know, Claver no. text where you have very nicely spaced half lines. I mean, it's no, basically it continuous um, letters. Uh, it's not quite as obnoxious as, you know, a, the oldest New Testament manuscripts, which don't even allow spaces between words. <laughs> mm -hmm. But uh, it's definitely not something that you could look at and say, okay, you know, obviously this is a poetic text i mean it just looks like a a string of words i don't know the answer to that one okay all right i didn't mean to put um, you on the spot it's just i i know that you know you you did a dissertation on this and i did not so i <laughs> <laughs> well on, on well and you took comps yeah. in it for that matter i'm yeah, yeah. Uh, listeners i mean in, in case you haven't picked up on this yet 
Um, like so many things in my life, I Forrest Gumped my way into teaching Old English. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I kind of found myself in a uh, classroom and said, "Oh, I should, I should probably teach this." <laughs> well, and more than I've had the opportunity to do. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, envious. <laughs> well, if if I had to make a stab at an answer, yeah. Um, I don't I don't know about the old English um, the old English evidence, but there is uh, when you get to the alliterative revival. Yeah. Uh, some of that alliterative revival poetry seems to work on that same kind of half line cesura half line structure. Right. But I do know that by the time we get to the alliterative revival, when they're copying out poetry they're doing it line by line um because that's how that's how chaucer's getting copied that's how langland's getting copied right you know, that's uh the the, the um, i believe the pearl poet is copied out like that right and of course that's so, after the beginning of the italian renaissance and i think i don't think that's a coincidence right so i i don't know maybe it's maybe it's a back formation of recognizing um hey this alliterative you know even though these lines are running together, there seems to be, you know, clear breaks in uh-huh. which the alliteration is binding things together. Okay. Um, so, yeah. And they well, might like have... I said, sorry I put you on the spot on that, but yeah. I just thought it just occurred to me to ask that question. <laughs> I think there might be punctuation in some Old English texts. Okay. But, it, but again, you know, it's been so long since I had to do with, with the manuscript side of things. Oh, me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so dear listeners, um, forgive, forgive. It's been a long time. And if you know better, please write us in in a yes. friendly way and not John, like, you hacks. Yeah. Jonathan <laughs> Evans, if you're listening. <laughs> We're sorry. We're so sorry. <laughs> yes. We, your, your, your disciples have failed to uh, cast <laughs> out the spirit of ignorance of manuscript tradition. Yeah. <laughs> Such is life. Well, do you want to, anything more we, we want to say about the poetry, or shall we get to the theology of it? You know, let's get to the theology, because like I said, I, I didn't mean to, but I got on a roll there, and then I looked up at the notes and realized I had just basically wiped out your entire <laughs> middle section there. So let's let's get to the theology. <laughs> let's do it. Um, I said this before, um, and, and I have a little bit, uh, I, I did a little bit on this in, you know, it's not it's not entirely new, but it was important in my in my dissertation. Did a little bit of this on in my dissertation, the idea that you know Cadman uh, Cadman is a poet, but he's also in some sense a prophet, um, so that his his story is um, I think, and I'm not you know this is not an unusual thing, uh, and not an unusual opinion in old English studies that. Cadman's story has been structured or told in a way that evokes prophetic calls. Mm-hmm. So can you bring that out? Well, I, I think it is analogous, although certainly not identical, to something like what the Roman emperors do when they narrate the conversion of Constantine. So, you mm. know, in that story, famously... Um, oh, shoot, I've, I've just forgotten the name of the bridge... <laughs> well, at any rate, uh, he he is about to march forth into a battle that's named after a bridge. And listeners, I really am a hack. I'm sorry, but 
Um, I, I keep wanting to say Baden Bridge, but it's Baden Hill. So I, at any rate, uh, and it's not Merovingian Bridge. So it's some kind of bridge that he is marching to the battle in. Right. Uh, and he receives a vision of the Greek letters key and row. Uh, basically, you know, he takes this as a sign from the gods, uh, because as far as he's concerned, there's probably more than one. Uh, he thus takes that as the standard for his armies. He wins this battle, later finds out that, you know, this was a sign from the god of the Christ followers. So, you know, obviously <laughs> Constantine, very, very laden historical figure. I don't want to put too much weight on that, but it's a, it's a similar sort of thing here because... When uh, Bede is telling the story of, you know, the beginnings of English Christianity, uh, he's very interested in noting that, in fact, God is active and intelligibly uh, present among the English as Christianity comes to them. And so one of the narrative types that, you know, signals activity and presence of God is the calling of the prophet. And so, you know, it's one of those things where do I think that uh, Bede invented it out of whole cloth? Well, no, that's stupid. Do I think that Bede, with a whole mess of stories to pick from, picked this one because it's important to establish that kind of history? Well, yes. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is a story of how God begins to speak to the English through the English by means of a visitation in a dream, not unlike what you would see in the Joseph narrative or the... Daniel narrative, uh, and in this case, you know, it is someone who is called uh, to sing the songs of the entire scriptural tradition. So it, it really is one of those things where when Bede is, you know, composing this history, and remember it is an ecclesiastical history, so he's very interested in the movement of Christianity. Uh, he's interested not only in the times when Rome sends missionaries and not only the times when uh, monks become abbots and nuns become abbesses, uh, but also in those miraculous moments when God speaks a word and specifically when God actually starts the tradition of written English poetry. So uh, what else about this story, I mean, is, is important as a prophet story, David? Mm. It was the Milvian Bridge. Thank you, thank you, Dag Nab. I... <laughs> and and again, listeners, this is this is the difference between me and Michael Farmer. One of the many differences, I should say, between me and Michael Farmer is uh, I am entirely too arrogant to write down a lot of notes before episodes, so I rely <laughs> on my uh, increasingly shaky memory. <laughs> no, my, my Michael Michael come Michael preps, man. Oh, he comes loaded for bear. I I yeah. When Michael pretends that he's the slacker or not, no. Yeah, when he pretends that he's the slacker and I'm the workhorse, uh, he is hustling you listeners. <laughs> <laughs> well, a couple of things. Um, I'm reminded, you know, in this story, I'm reminded of both the call of Moses and of Jeremiah, mm -hmm. um, both of whom plead him inability when they're called. Right, right. And the... Um, this model, this uh, this type of the prophet who who cannot speak on his own, um, who hasn't the words, who hasn't the tongue for it. Um, you know, Moses pleads inability of speech. 
uh, Jeremiah pleads, you know, the inadequacies of youth, if I remember. Uh-huh. Um, but in in both cases, you have you have I prophets. I am but in Jeremiah. Yeah. I I couldn't have I couldn't do the Hebrew there, but but yeah, um, you know, Jer- Jeremiah and and Moses both claim they are they are inadequate as speakers. They cannot be ones who who speak in response to this divine call because of their own inadequacy. And then they are both made able. Mm-hmm. Um in in the same way um you can see something like that happening in Cadman's story, you know, when the the speaker appear, you know, the the man, some man appears before him and says, uh, Cadman, sing for me. And then Cadman says, I don't know how, I can't sing, and that's why I left the feast and came here. And the man addressed him and said, but you shall sing to me. Right. Uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Old English text, the word that's used is a form of magen, which means you are able to, you have the power to, you have the capacity to. And up till that point, he hasn't. But now some man tells him, no, you can, and then he does. Right. And yeah, I, I, I think that's, I think that's pretty, uh, a, a pretty clear, pretty clear echo to basically to say that Cadman's gifts, you know, Cadman's just not a clever poet so that when he renders scripture into vernacular verse, He's not just a clever English poet doing his clever poetry thing with the text. Um, it's almost as if this this uh, vernacular verse that he's producing is 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 inspired in its translation, um, right. which uh, which is an, an interesting notion in itself. But it seems as if I, I I don't know. I wonder if Beat is feeling a bit defensive about retelling the Bible in Old English verse, and so he wants to give it this almost prophetic, you know, he gives it this prophetic lineage as a kind of sanction. Right. Let me ask you this, because I really don't know this. I mean, by the time of, you know, the age of Alfred, roughly speaking, which is where I tend to think of the Old English bead as emerging, uh, Mm -hmm. has Latin taken a place of supremacy as the language of divine things? Um... I mean, because well, you, I, I think you're right that I mean it does have an apologetic air to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder why that would be necessary. Well, one of the things that um, one of the things that's happening, well, in the in the age of Alfred, one of the things that's happening is that Latin is being lost. Al, Alfred is very concerned that there are not that that the priests are largely losing their Latin, uh-huh. and so one of the reasons why why Alfred really pushes for uh, a kind of great books in the vernacular program is because of the number of uh, clergymen who he thinks can't read it in in its original language. Mm-hmm. Um, but even Bede has a concern for vernacular ministry. Um, uh, Bede, for instance, would uh, would advocate catechism in English. Uh, uh, he advocated preaching in English, uh, including translation of scripture, um, on the fly in English. 
Um, he he advocated for the translation of the creeds into English so that they could be learned and recited by English converts in their own language. Mm-hmm. So Bede was um, in 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 a number of places was pushing for a a largely vernacular ministry in English. Now, what was something else that was happening around the time of Bede was other folks in the English church, like Wilfred, mm-hmm. uh, who saw himself as a disciple of Rome and was pushing for for an English church that was much more patterned on Roman things. And, you know, you can you can go find various texts that talk about um, Bede's kind of rivalry with with Wilfred and Wilfred's Rome lovingness. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, if, if there's a defensiveness in Bede about the appropriateness of doing scripture in English, um, I wonder if it might be because of something even in his own day. Of, of various churchmen who were saying, if we were a church planted by Rome, we need to be doing things more and more in the Roman pattern. Right. But then in the face of that, Bede writes the history of the church in England, in, which includes letters from, from various Roman bishops, um, including uh, instructions from those Roman bishops saying, teach in the vernacular, um, embrace the culture, be an English church. Right. So it, it, I, I would say that Bede's probably writing history with a bit of a polemical edge in his own time. Okay. Yeah. So poet, <laughs> poet, poet is prophet for Bede's age, too. Right, right. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, Bede, there's about as much distance between Bede and Charlemagne as there is between Charlemagne and Alfred the Great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, you know, I, I think of, you know, the reforms that Charlemagne attempted to affect. And I mean, the fact that he wanted to really, um, how to say reinforce Latin education for very similar reasons that, you know, I mean, he would hear priests, you know, trying to recite the mass and their grammar was so bad that you would get, you know, now bless you in the name of the fatherland and the daughter and the you know, the <laughs> spirit dog or, you know, whatever else, you know, <laughs> and, you know, it wasn't because they had bad intentions, but their, their Latin was so poor that they were just saying the wrong words. <laughs> oh, I mean, that, that, that's, that's even worse than inadvertent, you know, uh, worship pastor, patropassianism. Oh goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Wow. Yeah, I, I think there was probably some concern for that for that as well. But it seems that instead of instead of uh, Charlemagne saying all you guys need to go to Latin boot camp, um, Alfred said, "Okay, let's just render it all in English, and you can read that." Right, right. And I wonder. I mean, and again, I mean, th- this is my you know Richard Weaver look for roots of everything in the medieval tendency. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wonder if that you know at least partially accounts for the fact that you know England went Protestant, so to speak, so much earlier than France did. Hmm. Or I, I, not the sole factor, obviously, but I wonder if that is a factor. Well, I mean, when you trace it up through, Alfred, you know, Alfred uh, helped set the stage, you know, in the 
you know, in his era for, you know, later uh, Alf Rich in the late ninth, early 10th century, who, who actually did a vernacular Bible translation, at least yeah. su- substantially. Um, and then, you know, there's, I think mem- memories of old English law and the way things used to be lingered even after the conquest. You know, you have people during the Peasants' Revolt in the 1380s citing, you know, citing Canute. <laughs> right, right. As the precedent for their rights as peasants, you know. So, so maybe when, you know, when Wycliffe produces or uh, not personally produces, but has, uh, has produced under his sort of subversive imprimatur, uh, English translations. I don't know. Maybe there were memories that, Hey, we used to have the Bible in our language. Right. Right. I, I don't know. Hmm. The we the wheels, the, perhaps the tracks were greased for, for the reformation in England in a way they weren't in other places. Right. Right. Well, let's talk about the theology proper before, uh, yeah. Um, the titles for God, this, this particular little poem is just absolutely rich in variant things that the poet wants to call God. So I guess we can just kind of go back and forth and unpack some of our favorites. Yeah. I mean, my, my personal favorite actually comes right at the end, Freya Almighty, uh, mm-hmm. because, I mean, this is very clearly a Norse loan word, uh, mm-hmm. and specifically it's borrowed from their pantheon. I mean, Fry is one of their high gods, uh, and here the English poet, I mean, sees perfectly fit uh, to say, all right, you know, that syllable, uh, or that pair of syllables, depending on how you scan it, uh, you know, those who didn't know any better might have used it to name a false god, but the mm-hmm. syllables themselves are perfectly serviceable to name our God. And and I doubt this will be the last time, so I won't promise the last time. But again, it's reminiscent of uh, what we get in the Hebrew Bible when we get, you know, the Canaanite loan word El used in so many titles of the Hebrew God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, El Shaddai and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, El, of course, is the creator God of several Canaanite uh divine myths and the hebrews you know seem without too much problem to have imported it in and said okay you know this is a good serviceable syllable uh we'll make it a grammatical plural for reasons that i'm not sure of and if we've got hebrew bible people out there maybe you can explain that to me uh to make the generic noun elohim um and you know here in uh, cadman's hymn to come back it's one of those places where you see that this really is a missionary text in a lot of ways because uh, the rhetoric signals that, okay, what you thought was Fry, forget that, we've got the real Fry for you. So won't you mm-hmm. take a God name, David? Um, is it, if I remember correctly, that particular name, mean, it means Lord? Yeah. So that would make it sort of equivalent to Adonai? It or? would indeed, it would indeed, yeah. Or 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 Baal. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's what's interesting is that you know uh, you absolutely did not refer to Yahweh as Baal in the Hebrew <laughs> Bible, but El was all right. 
<laughs> and so was Adonai, even though that was also, if I remember correctly, one yeah, that was yeah. mm-hmm. used in the surrounding cultures. Right. Um, well, in interesting ones like uh, mated in the second line, mated um, related to the word meet, like, you know, to mete out justice mm-hmm. um, means basically to measure. Um, it was a word that had to do um, in, in uh, some other texts, uh, some other uh, Old English poetic texts. Method refers to uh, a, a kind of destiny or fate, um, especially a kind of uh, justice that's going to get you. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, um, the, the, the method, the measurer, uh, the one who who meets things out is the one who made the world. Uh, it's not an impersonal fate. It's not an uh, an impersonal destiny. It's not the Furies or Nemesis. It's uh, it's it's the one God. And in fact, uh, we see his work his work as Method um, beginning at beginning at creation. It's not as if Method is simply concerned with how things turn out in actions that are already existing. This Method gets things started. Right, right. And uh, the Method has might, Makta, uh, and he has Modiathank. He has, he has plans in mind. Um, he's, he has mind thinkings. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> um, he has devices. He has, um, you know, he here. It, you know, this 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 looks pretty pretty close to the kinds of uh, kinds of things that when Christians talk about, um, you know, the Creator and his his uh, his provident ordering of the universe. Metodos um, Mekta and his Modiathank is is probably as good a way to say that kind of idea in Old English as you could find. Right, right. And what's fun, too, about mode is that it is the root word of our modern English, mood. Uh, oh, yeah. So it's one of those things where, you know, uh, Old English, at least at the level of the lexicon, uh, seems to be fairly sophisticated in that it doesn't separate sort of a mind from a will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's one of those things where, you know, I'm sure if you if, if you pressed a medieval monk on the question... He would say, well, of course, it's possible to, you know, uh, premeditate things in cold blood, uh, but that ultimately that's not how we usually operate, right? Usually we just have mode. (laughs) (laughs) I'm in the mode. Yes, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I am minded to do this. So in other words, God's plans aren't the blueprints of a hired architect, uh, but they are the mode. They are an existential disposition of goodwill towards the world. I think you could do it both ways. Okay, go. Yeah, I think you could do it. I, I think you could do it both ways because in the poem, you've got shaping for sons of men heaven as a roof, uh-huh. and then the earth that they're put on. Um, you know, well, we're we're kind of as edging into you know kind of cosmology here, but there's, there's, there's already a kind of an architectural, um, mode going on here. Right. Right. I, I, and I, and I should, I should have emphasized the hired architect. It's not just someone who's doing it, you know, 
without any personal investment. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Certainly, but, there is architecture. Yeah, I, I should have picked a different yeah. metaphor there. <laughs> yeah, there's there's architecture in their plan, but you're right. It's it's also with a very clear disposition. It's you know th- there's th- this is all this is all coming out of care. Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Right. Absolutely. This isn't just a job for God. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Um, another one that is a lot of fun is the Holly Shippend. Uh, mm-hmm. Holly, you know, uh, if you had to learn Silent Night in English and Spanish and German, as I did when I was a a wee a wee lad in grade school to sing for the Christmas concert, uh, you know that you know Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht is the opening line to the German version of Silent Night, the original, not coincidentally. Uh, Holly <laughs> here is you know the root of our modern holy. It's also, you know, rooted in notions of health or wholeness. Uh, mm. Again, it's one of those words, uh, and this happens, by the way, in all kinds of translations. If anyone ever tells you that Greek has this, you know, corner on precision of language, it's not true. Every language is precise on <laughs> some things and imprecise on others. Um, but in this case, you know, uh, it is the whole and holy sheep end. And it's mm. fascinating here because this is a, the root of our uh, shape. Uh, mm-hmm. God is the one who gives shape to the world. It's also related to shope, which is the Beowulf poet's favorite word for uh, one who recites verse. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also you know, related to the verb shepon, which appears in the line just before, uh, which can be to create, to form, to give shape. Uh, mm-hmm. So again... The metaphor for God here is one who is uh, giving form to that which we can regard with a disposition of appreciation as well as one of gratitude. Mm-hmm. That creation is a kind of poetry. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 especially with with this being a um, a first poem that's about the first poem. Oh, gosh. Yes, so every obnoxious graduate literature class you ever had where every poem is about being a poet. Yes, well, <laughs> there you go. No, actually, actually, I only had one of those. It just happened to be my very first graduate class in English. And, I, and I'll admit, I mean, that shaped my, uh, my contrarian disposition for the rest of grad school, I'm pretty sure. Because <laughs> I got to see what happens when Harold Bloom is your default critic. <laughs> Oi. Well, I, I I don't think I don't think Cad, well Cadman's too early to be making that that I don't think that move is hacky hacky yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at at this point, I think it's insightful. Right. He's and, like, you know, he's he's saying I make with words. God makes with words. Right, right. That's awesome. And also, Cadman was early enough in Harold Bloom's career, there probably wasn't a whole lot of overlap. <laughs> probably not, no. Probably not. <laughs> well, I think I'll finish out uh, with looking at one that shows up a couple of different times, which is uh, Etche Drichten. Um, Etche, eternal, everlasting, timeless, mm-hmm. um, long-living uh, etch is kind of vague, but it's it's hard to talk about time in any language. Um, and then Drichten, which means uh, roughly lord, but something more like warlord. 
Yeah. Um, the the Yadrikt is the war band, um, the guys who go out and fight together. And the Drikten is the leader of the war band. So, uh, you know, here we have the the Eternal Lord, yes. And uh, Drikten actually also went on to be uh, a pretty common uh, divine title in Old English poetry and uh, homily, even. Right. Um, but here, uh, you know, I, I think you can see the roots um, because this is heaven reaches where this is the heavenly kingdom's guardian. So there's there's a little bit of and we're praising his might. Uh, there, there's there's a little bit of uh, warriorliness associated with this god. <laughs> yes, maybe, maybe, yeah. I think this is probably uh, Etchedrichton is probably as close as you can get in Old English to translating Yahweh Sabaoth. Yep. Which you know the Lord of Hosts. Which again, pretty uh, pretty cool, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, how does how does God make in this poem? Cosmogony. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's fascinating here is that, you know, as we were alluding earlier, uh, what we get here is a very architectural vision of the creation. So, I mean, mm-hmm. if you think of Genesis 1, you think of separation as your primary motion, right? So you get the... Mm-hmm. Waters separated from the waters, one in the firmament, one in the seas. You get waters separated from dry land, uh, you know, so that there can be space for life as we know it to happen. And so it becomes, you know, a a poem where the main thing that has to happen is that everything has to be in its place. Mm-hmm. You turn from there to Cadman's hymn. Uh, what we get is a much more architectural metaphor. So uh, here we get the heavens not as the byproduct of the separations of waters from waters, uh, but rather uh, you get, excuse me, heaven specifically named as Hrofa, as a roof. Uh, So it becomes part of the architecture of the great hall that is the earth. Uh, You also get, you get Furum Fuldon, uh, which you know has the generic sense of earth, but it also has uh, it also stands in contrast to that roof uh, as being that which lies beneath. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, unlike Genesis, where you've got a sort of chaotic uh, initial state, tohu wabohu, formless and void, uh, that gives way to an ordered creation where everything is in its place. Here, uh, you don't really have much commentary at all on a prior state. Instead, what you get as is an extended metaphor of the Middle Earth on which we live, take a drink of your ale, uh, as a <laughs> grand hall, like the hall that, you know, the kings would have dined in. Mm-hmm. What else you got, David? Well, just to kind of call back to, you know, the use of the word, uh, you know, he, he shop. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he's the shepherd. You know that that idea of, of 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 shaping and their connection to the to the poetic, um, I think is is is. I, I think that's that's not a stretch in the context. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, it's it's interesting the the title at the end, uh, Frey or Freya. Um, 
in the we don't know a whole lot about Anglo-Saxon uh, what Anglo-Saxons believed about their gods before the Christians came. They didn't write stuff down. Right. But if you look to the Norse, uh, they have uh, who also gods. didn't write stuff down. To be fair. <laughs> well, but but they had they had. Yeah, when they were writing stuff down, um, when they started writing stuff down, they were a little more concerned about writing that stuff. <laughs> yeah, true <laughs> enough, were, true enough. Them were, you know, post-conversion Anglo-Saxons. Um, anyway, if you, if you look to the uh, the Old Norse, um, Frey in uh, Scandinavia is a fertility god. Um, he's, he's a god of... of especially plant life or, but also, you know, the fertility of your livestock. He's someone that, you know, farmers pray to, mm -hmm. uh, in order to ensure a good harvest or a good calving. Um, and here, this is, this is a name that's invoked for God, um, at the end of a creation story. So balancing the poet and balancing the architect, there's this idea of he is the source of natural life of, uh, of zoology, you know, zoological life and of, you know, and of plant life. And he's, you know, he, he's the one from whom life comes, uh, I think is also something that's being emphasized here, mm -hmm. which is, you know, which, which is kind of neat. It, 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 it helps to balance these, these different images, um, so that you end up with something that's, more multifaceted, I think, than what most people get on a flannel graph the first time they're presented with the story. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and and I like that. I like I like this idea that you know in the same poem, Cadman's able to kind of hit, you know, hit God's creative work in different registers. Pretty cool. It is indeed. Uh, any any final comments we want to make about Cadman's hymn before we go? Uh, about the only thing I'd say is that, you know, I mean, this was, in my own experience, uh, the first real encounter that I had with an Anglo-Saxon text that I could sit and study. You know, I had been shown uh, overhead transparencies. Yes, listeners, that's how old I am. Uh, <laughs> of, you know, sort of facsimile manuscripts. But mm -hmm. in the Norton Anthology of, of English literature, I could actually sit and see that, okay, these words aren't coming in standard English order. Uh, you know, a lot of these look similar, but a lot of them look entirely alien to English. So in a lot of ways, I think of this poem as, you know, sort of uh, planting the seeds about uh, of my own curiosity about language uh, mm. because I had had some Spanish before, but I'd never taken any ancient or medieval languages when first I encountered this. So... Uh, this is definitely a poem that has a, a significant place in my own story, uh, as well as in the, the stories that we've been laying out today. How about you, David? I read, when I read Cadman's, uh, the story of Cadman and Bede, and when I read the hymn, uh, it's, it's special to me because it, um, I mean, many, many hymns function in this way to me, but, uh, Cadman's hymn especially functions as, uh, a, a piece of Christian worship that reaches out across centuries and says to me, you guys didn't invent this faith. Um, you guys didn't come up with this in your own era. 
there are other people who believed in this God, who held this faith, who held it truly, and could say beautiful things of him, you know, of of this God. And that uh, that's encouraging to me. Um, for for me, Cadman is Cadman is important an important way in which I try to I try to live out the communion of the saints. Right. And so from that, I'm going to kind of toss out a challenge. If any of our listeners happen to be worship leaders, um, how about making a stab at incorporating this uh, into your repertoire? Um, there's several translations you can find, and you know who knows, maybe even singing in Old English that could work too. But yeah, you know, con- consider that you know Chris Tomlin did not invent singing to God. <laughs> you know, nor did Cadman. You know, um, but it, it helps to it helps to I think situate our modern worship uh, in in that larger choir. Um, visible and invisible. So, yeah. Sounds good. Well, who's on tap for next week? Do you know? Well, I'm going to uh, try to answer a request from a listener and also a former student of mine, Seth Porch. He requested that we do an episode on John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. So we're going to be reading a few of their letters that they wrote back and forth in old age uh, and talk a little bit about some of the really philosophical thought of some of those earliest American thinkers. Cool. All right. Well, dear listeners, I hope you've enjoyed uh, this episode on Cadman, and I'm looking forward to talking about some some founding fathers in our next episode. Uh, in the meanwhile, uh, if you'd like to send us any comments, uh, questions, corrections, um, snide remarks about not being able to remember the names of bridges or who Junius <laughs> is. Um, you can post those on the show notes on our blog, christianhumanist.org. You can send them as email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can post them on our Facebook page. If you're not already uh, uh, one who has liked our Facebook page and you feel inclined to do so, please do that. Uh, we also always ask for iTunes ratings. See, I did it that time, Nathan. There you go. Well, in the meanwhile, I'm David Grubbs uh, on behalf of Nathan Gilmore and Michael Farmer wishing you grand weeks. Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. And let's go with advice from Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger. Still the same.